people say hard to reach communities, but they're only hard to reach if you can't be bothered to reach them. You know, they're there, they're living in certain areas. You can reach them by picking up the phone or, or getting a bus and going to meet someone. There are more Asians involved in football than you would expect. There are nowhere near as many Asians involved in football as there should be. Join us on the Our Game 2 podcast as we celebrate the ones that are and discuss the ones that aren't. Okay, now we are joined by Kevin Yusuf Coleman of Brentford FC, who is their head of equality, diversity diversity even and inclusion good morning kevin how you doing good morning i'm doing pretty well how are you phenomenal thank you very much for asking i'm also happy to have you on because you're another west ham fan so you actually understand football unlike some of the people we've had on in the past i'm just kidding um so Kevin, um, before before Brentford, I mean, you've had quite an interesting career. You've been involved in football quite for quite a long time. So you, I know you're at the FA before. I know you've had different roles at Kick It Out, etc. You tell us tell us how your journey into football started and how your journey in this particular space came along as well. Well, I guess I'm I'm one of those sporty people. Probably started out like that. I've I've always played a lot of sport from a young age, um, went to university uh, and still did a lot of sport, probably more sport than studying. Um, and then eventually it was lucky enough when I left to get a job at the LTA because I play a lot of tennis. Um, and I was there for 10 years. And uh, it's really interesting being a governing body. You get quite a different outlook on sport um, than maybe in professional or development of sport. Uh, and then after that, I, I had quite a lot of involvement at, at the LTA with their equality standard. They're trying to weave. So when did you yeah. join the LTA? In 2000. In 2000, so right. 20, okay. Over 20 years ago now. And um, yeah, I was involved in their equality standard. So all governing bodies of sport have to achieve this benchmark of inclusion. Um, and And I was involved in that for the last couple of years at the LTA. Uh, and then that's how I, I got more involved and more of an understanding of inclusion and then joined Kick It Out. This, this job came up at Kick It Out and it was around grassroots and community inclusion. So it was working with grassroots clubs, um, clubs that are based around communities or around faith. So you're not your typical Sunday league teams. Uh, and also at Kick It Out, you know, it's, it's a smallish organisation. So everyone chips in to an extent. I was, I was involved in um recording reports of discrimination. So I was recording all of those at grassroots level. Um, And I was there for five years. And that was actually a really good grounding. So actually, when now I look back, all of these are quite essential ingredients. Um, That time gave me a massive grounding in community football. And then going to the FA, it was almost the other side of the table. It was the strategic overview of football nationally. Um, And I thought that was useful because what it does is it gives you a, a... an understanding of how football travels from strategy right at the top all the way to people playing in parks uh, and in schools. And I think you need to understand both ends. So if you, if you look at the FA, there's loads of people there who have some involvement in grassroots football. So someone like uh, Mick Bakey, who's head of leagues, you know, runs his own club with about 50 teams. There's loads of people there who are really entrenched in grassroots football. Um, and then out, and then I felt after about eight years at the FA, 
I'd learned a whole lot because it opens your world up to loads of opportunities. Um, but as a governing body, there are certain things you can do and certain things you can't do. And I think coming to Brentford was a, an opportunity to deliver all of that stuff that I'd learned at the FA um, and to kick it out. So, uh, so Brentford's um, ambition, and this is quite unusual because the, the business has two big ambitions. One is um, obviously the first team and performance on the pitch, you know, achieving success. And the second one is being the most inclusive club in the country. So for a club to put those as the two biggest objectives, I think is pretty unusual. I can't imagine there's another club that's saying and doing that, you know, so in terms of objectives for all the heads of departments, everyone, the chief exec, it's all front and centre. Um, and that's my role, really, to help the club to become the most inclusive club in the country. So that's the mandate. And I'm two months in. OK, cool. So just going back a bit, because I am curious. So at the LTA, so let's start at the LTA. Yeah. Um, what what sort of targets were they aiming for? Was this specifically on the governing side or were they looking at players? Because obviously tennis is quite a popular game in, in this country. Um, but And I know there have been a few... I mean, off the top of my head, I can think of a couple of Asian players, especially the juniors, a couple of black players or mixed heritage players, but but not many. So on what sort of levels are they looking at? Well, that's interesting. So I was at the governing body. They achieved something called the Equality Standard for Sport. And that really, on the top line, looks at the governing body itself. So are all your policies in place? Um, Are you auditing your staff, your workforce, how you recruit people? And I think that uh, are you looking at your board and does the the board and the the LTA council look at inclusion? And I think the thinking is that if you audit the organisation at that level, that's the most impactful thing you can do and hope that it permeates down to the sport. Um, It's interesting, though, you say that it's a very popular sport. It's it's probably quite a minority sport in terms of numbers. Um, if you compare us to other countries, uh, England has 50,000 competitive players. France has a million, so 20 times the amount. Um, and, and we have the issue of the weather. So, you know, everyone plays tennis for the two or three weeks around Wimbledon. And then but because of a lack of courts uh, and bad weather, people don't really get the chance. But you're right, it's really, really popular. I mean, I've grown up and lived in very diverse places all of my life. And everyone I know has been really keen on tennis. And there hasn't been any ethnic barrier around that, whether people are black or Asian, first, second generation. Everyone's really keen and likes tennis, but people don't regularly play it. And I would say, so funnily enough, I play tennis. That's my main sport. Probably shouldn't say that, but, you know, I've played it. I've coached it. I've even been an umpire. and I would say in tennis, there aren't really many exclusion or inclusion or discrimination barriers. The biggest barrier is class. Uh, and, and it's partly to do with Wimbledon. So Wimbledon is the biggest, best tournament in the world. And it, it in effect, bankrolls a lot of tennis in this country. So Wimbledon makes 20 to 30 million profit in, in two weeks. And they gift all of that money to grassroots tennis. So they give almost all of that money to the LTA to, to develop tennis. So you have this strawberries and cream, all wearing white image, which gives a perception to the population that it's a very classist, exclusive sport. And that money that they generate from that funds the sport. 
but at the same time, the sport is trying to open up to everybody. So when you go into your, your average club, your average club in this country is four concrete courts and a little clubhouse. People are really friendly, you know, and, and, uh, and grateful that people are interested and want to join. Usually there are very few clubs where, you know, the, there's a, there's a limit on membership and you have to pay a load of money or it's hard to get in. Um, usually people want more members because they're usually quite old clubs, but actually it's the image that holds people back. So people don't actively seek clubs or think they won't be accepted. Uh, and, but so people are introduced to tennis through quite middle-class means, whether it be school or uni or friends or family. Uh, and then it perpetuates that sort of stereotype. Okay. Yeah, that's quite interesting. Just whereabouts did you grow up? So Harrow. Uh, oh, right. I have to try and say it with the H. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> That's a West Ham fan in you. That is, that is, yeah. So Harrow, Range Lane, that area. Um, and uh, now just only just moved to Watford. So I, was, so I lived in Harrow 45 years. You know, Harrow is one of the one of the most diverse boroughs in the country. Um, it's a nice place, actually. I really like Harrow. You know, it's, it's very mixed. Um, you've got good schools. It's a nice-ish, nice place to live. Um, and what Watford's a bit greener as I've got older. I appreciate things like gardens and parks, you know, showing my age. <laughs> well, the reason I ask is, listen, I've grown up in in around East London and Ilford, and as a kid, one we were always on our bikes. So since about eight or nine, and we were obviously allowed out a lot earlier back in, way back in the seventies and eighties, um, and we always had our tennis rackets and the football. If we didn't have enough people to play football, we'd be in the parks playing tennis. And they were always packed. You used to have the parkies. You have to pay them to do that. So, I mean, maybe that's why I've always seen it as a popular sport. Um, mm. Yeah, I know it's not going to compete with football. Um, but, it, yeah, I Which guess is it's an interesting point. I, I think tennis and football might be quite similar. So one thing I remember from the FA, because part of my role was to work with all the county FAs. So there are 50 of them across the country. And in London, East London especially, the biggest barrier was actually facilities. So football, and I'm assuming tennis, were very popular sports, but there were never enough pitches, simply because of the way East London is set up, how dense it is, how little land there is. There were never enough pitches, and I'm guessing as well tennis courts, for the demand. So there was almost, you know, you, you could develop the sport as much as you want, but you're never going to have the land to have the facilities for people to play. And I think that was one of the constrictions in, in, in London, especially East London, that was almost nothing you could do around it. Okay. Interesting. Cool. All right. Mm. So at, at Kick It Out, um, mm. I mean, it's quite interesting. So you were working with the grassroots and the communities, etc. Um d- I know recently Kick Out, they received a little bit more funding, etc. Do you think? Do you think at the time you were able to do an effective job at Kick It Out? Do you think you were held back by by lack of money? Um, I guess there's also an issue around. Well, you said it's a small organisation, so how much could you achieve, and how much yeah, do you think you achieved? It's, a, it's an interesting. I think it's one of those where it depends how you how you measure it. You know, obviously for the people I w- worked with it felt like it was really impactful, you know, but football is so big. So here's a, another interesting stat I always love is 
football isn't just the biggest sport, it's three of the biggest sports. So men's football is number one, participation. Women's football is number three. Disability football is number seven in terms of participation. You know, so over 11 million people a year play football regularly. So it's going to be, for any organisation, even if you look at the FA, which is the biggest national association in the world, they're never going to have enough people to really reach out and service the, the whole football playing population. It's really difficult. So I think Kick It Out was a campaign and its biggest impact was that. It was the comms. It was, you know, it was sending out positive messages around inclusion, putting pressure on the governing bodies so they did more within their resources. Um, I think, you know, we, we had a series of, of we had, uh, chairs and, and chief execs that I think did the best from the resources we had. So I think, you know, positivity, campaigning, um, engaging with the, the people that we can. And also kick it out, I found in my role anyway, was almost a, um, I guess, a bridge. So you would have, and I did this a little bit in the FA as well, you have lots of communities who are really interested in football. Um, communities, uh, whether it be based around ethnicity or faith communities, who play football their own way and sort of muddle through. And then you have the governing bodies or county FAs over here, and they don't know about each other. You know, the county FAs are trying to be more inclusive, but have never met those communities or haven't been very good at outreach, uh, not really moving out of their offices. And then you've got the community here who don't know the county FA exists, don't know there's funding pots, for example, available. And I think my role and Kick It Out's role still to some expect, uh, extent is to bridge that gap you know, if you look at the, the number of applicants Football Foundation gets from clubs that are not white English, it's tiny compared to the populations. So information is one of the biggest weapons you, you can use positively. Just telling people those, those funding parts, those development opportunities are out there is really, really important. You could, that's almost a really quick win that, that the FA kick it out, counting FA should be doing still now. It sounds like your role at Kick Out was quite proactive, which to many people will come as a... Did I say proactive? I did, didn't I? <clears throat> which will come as a surprise because generally people see Kick It Out as a reactive organisation. Something happens and you get either Sanjay at the, currently for, or someone else from Kick It Out to, mm. to condemn the comments or the actions, etc., that have happened. Um, was that... Was that any kind of barrier or problem to what you were trying to achieve? No, I think, you know, that, that's the nature of football. Is it? Professional football is the window, uh, is the window dressing of all of football. You know, professional football is less than 1% of football, but it's the bit that everyone sees. So if anything positive happens in pro football, then that's the bit they remember anything negative. And I think it's an easy story for the media, the media to push around discrimination. You know, it's an easy win for them. It's quite a, a, a well-trodden path. Um, I think the trick is for organisations like Kick It Out and pro football clubs to work with the media to send out the positive messages. You know, sometimes people say that, that positivity doesn't really sell. That's true to an extent. But if you're creative, you know, there's loads of good news stories around football that, that people always remember. We just they need to be smarter about trying to sell it to the papers. You know, media organisations need to sell papers. So we need to fit our our story into what they want to sell i think that's where the trick is and turn all of those negatives you know how many times have we heard a story about um uh, a discriminatory tweet 
uh, and it's almost the same story repetitively. And we need to try and change the narrative. We know that's happening. You know, that happens in, in social media. It happens in, in, in society generally. Discrimination will always be there. I think the, the job of kick it out, the FA, uh, police, is to deal with it better. I've got a question regarding um, just what you mentioned about organisation like Kick It Out being the bridge between, say, the community and, say, the, the professional side of football, right? Are people fully mm. aware of the role of Kick It Out? Because what tends to happen, like you kind of mentioned about the media, and they will amplify stories which are critical because bad news sells, right? And I've someone who's been in the media mm. myself, good news is never a good seller. You know, it's always stuck in the community pages mm. or deep within the newspaper, whereas a front page splash or back page splash will be something that's, you know, going to get people talking and good news really gets, really mm. gets people talking. So, and, and the other thing that used to happen, just say, with Kick Out was if a player then suddenly came out and criticised, I'm not wearing the shirt anymore, or, you know, the, the, during the weeks of action or mm. what are Kick Out useful for? for I'm, and I'm just using them as an example because that's what we're talking about. If a small organisation which is trying to do good gets criticized by someone bigger then that's amplified in the media and then in the community perception is mm. well that's what they're there for they're supposed to help these players and they're not helping do you think there's enough awareness of what say an organization like kick out or show, show racing and red card those organizations how pivotal they are in terms of what they can do for the community rather than the professional side yeah definitely not yeah i mean you could say it's partly because of the size of the organisation. They don't have the budgets and the, the, the ability um, to, to inform everyone. But I think you're right that there's, a, there's a, what, a missing bit of the puzzle is that they should be spending time informing people of what they can do at that level. You know, so kick it out, have reporting officers, so, you know, people who deal specifically with complaints of racism. They have two or three officers that work to support pro clubs around inclusion. Uh, they have people working, two um, members of staff working with county FAs and community groups, um, you know, people working specifically on comms. And I think you're right, there's a, a number of people who think it's just T-shirts. Um, and, you know, I think that T-shirts are not a negative thing. I think they're a positive thing if they're part of a wider plan, which they are. So actually kick it out, release their new strategy this week. And the, the, the new CEO there, or sorry, chair, Sanjay, you know, he's done a lot of good work. He's, he's a smart guy and he understands the football landscape, which is really complex. And that's another thing, you know, the general football watching public don't understand how complex and, and political it is, how non-logical it is, because it's growing very organically and, and kick it out. And all the other organisations have to navigate all of that to, to try and get to their objectives. But yeah, you're right. I think if people understood more the good work that kick it out um, and red card, et cetera, do, um, they'd have a different perception of them. Was it with, whilst you were at Kick It Out, I think it must have been that you got involved with the National Asians in Football Forum? That's right, yeah. So Butch Fazell, which you, I think you might have had on here earlier or, or in the future, <clears throat> is someone who used to be the chair, National Asians Football Forum, um, originally had Piara Power, um, Pav Singh, some really key influential people um, and actually when I came to kick out I sort of took over the reins a little bit or, or more did a lot of the, the the admin and the movement behind the scenes 
because um, <clears throat> I wasn't as in, embedded in football. You know, I wasn't a player. I wasn't a manager. People like Pav and Piara, Butch, um, Imral would have more influence. And I think they're the people would be the, the, the speakers and the spokespeople. But I, I had a good understanding of it because I was sort of there trying to corral people to go to events and do the comms around it. <clears throat> and again, that was really, really good grounding because at the FA, governing bodies, they don't have that information or that, that knowledge. And if you don't have that knowledge, then you can't deliver your national strategies properly. Okay. Um, so when, do you know when, when did they disband? Well, I wouldn't say it officially disbanded, so it wasn't like a rock group. You know, it wasn't like um, One Direction. I think it sort of people went into it because it was a voluntary group. Uh, there wasn't much funding behind it. Um, it was people going in different directions and it sort of petering out. Um, <clears throat> you know, Butch now, has uh, I always, he's, he's been poacher turned gamekeeper, you know, so he was one of the fiercest critics of the FA. And now he works for the FA in a really important inclusion role. Um, and I think when you've seen both sides of the table, you get how difficult it is and how really how both sides are trying to do the same thing. But, you know, looking at it from, from like most disagreements or misunderstandings are, you got a lot of people with the same sort of objectives, just not understanding the other side. Um, but yeah, those people are in PR, power is the head of FAIR, football against racism, Europe, butchers at the FA. Pav is a coach developer at the FA as well. So I think that's a good thing. You know, there are people with these, with tons of knowledge and understanding of diversity who are now working at the FA. It looks completely different organisation than it did 10, 15 years ago, for sure. Still a long way to go, but it's in much better shape than it was. Do you think there's a requirement or a need for either for the, for the National Asian Football Forum. I just I'm just looking at the acronym NAF. NAF yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't want to say that. Do you think that there's a need for an organisation <laughs> like that to either to re-emerge or or to be created to to kind of keep keep the FA and the other bodies like the like the PFA etc. Not so much in check, but keep them going in the wrong in the right direction. I guess look, it's easy. It's easy to be on the outside and criticise. It's also mm. easy to be on the inside and say there's lots of difficulties. But and I guess I'm not. I'm not suggesting for a second that any of anyone who's within is then taking a little bit back and is befuddled or whatever by all by the uh, amount of obstacles. But now that you're you've passed the FA, we will come back to you in the FA mm. shortly. But do you think something like NAF needs to come back? It's an interesting one. And I think the answer is yes and no. So I think there are lots of organisations or structures out there. So that there are two sides. There's, the, there's the, the principle side and the practical side. So in principle, something like that, you would think what makes sense having something like that. In practice, it's only useful if it works. So I'm trying to think of the only example I can think of. Um, a left field one is a royal family. So in principle, it doesn't make sense that someone should get all of that wealth and power simply by being born into one family. It goes against everything we believe in around meritocracy. But in practice, it's a really useful thing. You know, they, they temper the, the image of the country. They can often be a lot more useful than politicians. They're quite moderate. 
generally have the nation's interests at heart, but you wouldn't believe in the principle. And there are other organisations where technically you think that's a great idea, but practically sometimes they're pointless. And that would be where people would call it a tick box, for example. You know, a lot of organisations would set up an inclusion group because that's the thing to do. It's been recommended. Put the wrong people on there. No one listens to it. And it's a tick box. So I think having something like NAF works if the governing bodies and the state stakeholders all buy into it and all listen to it. So you've got to have both of those. You've got to set it up properly with proper terms of reference. Then you've got to recruit all the right people on it. And they've got to work to those objectives. There's got to be no personal agendas. It can't be political. It's got to be run really strictly. And then you've got to get those people who have the power to listen to it. Um, that's usually where it goes wrong. You'll sometimes get loosely the right thing happening. So often you get the wrong people, people on groups, because they've got a personal agenda or they want to, they want their profile to be higher. And then it ends up, they'll, they'll put recommendations forward. The governing bodies look at it, don't quite fancy it, and then move on. Um, I think that's the bit. If you get all of those three bits, and actually it's beneficial for everyone, but I think the more and more you've been in the game, the more and more you realise it comes back to leadership. You know, And that's one thing that attracted me to Brentford. You know, If the chief exec and the board are saying, we really want to do this, they're going to put money behind it, they're going to, they're going to live it themselves, you know, then it's worth doing. So it comes back to the, I think, really the leadership. You know, if the leadership of all of football say something needs to be done, they've got the skills to set the group up. They've got the skills to do good recruitment and they've got the skills, the, the ability to listen and put those things into place. I think at the moment, it seems to me that the appetite is there. I mean, it started unfortunately due to the George Floyd tragedy and that created the whole Black Lives Movement etc and from the back of that there's been more recognition that there's lots wrong in society and it needs to change um, and that has also led to things like the, the players taking the knee etc so I know you've answered the question but now Ooh. that in that, that, with that perspective, the fact that there is an appetite for change, I'm going to ask you the question again. So do you think it needs to come back? And then perhaps then we'll move on to what your thoughts are on taking the knee and what Brentford's stance is on that. Ooh, I think, I think it can't, it, yeah, it should come back, but in, in the right form. So, you know, Sport England have released their new strategy saying more inclusion needs to be embedded across all of sport. Um, I think you need Sport England, the FA, the Premier League, all around the table, recognising uh, that Asian inclusion is a strategic priority or should be. You know, look at the stats, it's undeniable. You know, the biggest diverse population in the country with the least representation in every aspect of football. I mean, that is the biggest strategic, strategic priority, ethnicity-wise anyway, um, that there's ever been. And no one's really stuck their head above the parapet at leadership level and said, actually, this is a priority for us. We're going to get together with the rest of the football family. We're going to sit down. We're going to do the right thing. It doesn't need to cost a lot of money, actually. I found the most impactful things in football changes have been when you haven't spent anything and you've embedded change. You know, you embed inclusion into the stuff you're already doing because then that won't disappear the next time the funding cycles come around. So I guess can I, just, inter can I yeah. just interject on that about um, about change and, and everything? 
I've got two points to this. One, I think people are impatient for change because if you implement any kind of systemic changes, it takes a little while for that to mature. Especially in a football and in a sport that big. Exactly. I, I just think in any field, really. Um, I was just thinking about, just say, I'm going a bit left field here, but just it was Amir Khan. When he went to the Olympics in 2004, won the silver medal, there was this huge thing that he suddenly propelled in the limelight and would have been representative of, say, the Muslim, the Pakistani, the Asian community in Britain. And then two, a year later, turned professional. And then we had the unfortunate uh, events on 7th July with the London bombings. And then he, that was two weeks after he had this first professional, that happened two weeks before he had this first professional fight. All of a sudden, he was then representative of these cohesion between say the muslim community and the rest of britain um but his impact is i feel has been felt now because there's more pro asian boxers coming through in the last two years uh, every time i'm looking at it i'm seeing another asian boxer turn professional in the amateur rankings that if you're going to say he was the reason for that change it's happened what 15 years later and it makes sense because those kids would have been between four and eight and now they're 18 to 20 to 24, that's that impact. And I think most people, when, when you say we want change to happen, even with the best will and intention, change does happen over a period of time. So one thing is impatience. But the second one is, you mentioned something about knowledge. Um, say at the EFA, they don't have the knowledge. When you went there, you took the knowledge from kicking out, working with diverse communities, especially Asian communities, going to the EFA and then... Um, taking that knowledge with you and sharing that with the rest of the organization hopefully that then seeps into national and, and and county level but then when people move on that knowledge goes as well doesn't it so is that another reason why change doesn't happen or things don't seem to be changing because the individuals who had the knowledge leave positions or move on um and no one else picks up from the on the back of that or there's a knowledge gap and then you seem to start from position of zero again or from a level one again to then get better and understand. And then anything that comes out seems to be the same thing that's been said previously. It's just a, a cycle that repeats itself. I think it depends. And that's one thing I've learned. I, I always, so I learned it halfway through at the FA and, and more so now. Um, I always think of it this way. You know, if I were to get run over by a bus tomorrow, does all the work disappear at the same time? So you need to embed. So you need to embed it in others. So at Brentford, for example, you know, people have uh, at workplaces PDRs or appraisals, you know, whatever your work program is for the year, what you're accountable for. And one of my key things is every single person at the club has to have EDI inclusion in their work program. So whether you're answering the phones on the front desk, if you're in finance, if you're the kit man, it, whatever your role, there is an inclusion element to your job. And that's happening. And that, you know, I know that if I were to, you know, if, the, if I were to just fall off a cliff, all of that stuff would be embedded. And I think that's where, so, uh, uh, for example, at the FA, um, I came across, the first thing we did was set up the first Asian inclusion plan. We're now on the second one, which is bigger than the first one. You've got four or five people working on it. If you look at county FAs, I would say, Two-thirds of County FA inclusion groups have Asian members on them. Um, quite a few of the counties, not all, are recognising Asian inclusion. and So I would say that has been the impact of all of that work. So I'm sort of, to an extent, happy. I think we could always do more. Um, you know, I think across the FA, 
there's been more Asian staff, but not much recognition of, of Asian communities within the organisation. But, you know, I think it's better than it was. So trying to embed in what you do rather than that person um, just staying. Yeah, 100%. It's, it's the way those people stay and what they do. And also, you know, the way the leadership um, treat them. As I say, if it's tokenistic and tick box, you'll employ the person, they'll do their work, they'll move on. If the leadership believe in it, they'll take what that person's doing and try and spread it further and get other staff involved. Cool. Okay, so let's talk about the FA. So <clears throat> what role did you join as? And you've just mentioned that you set up the Asian inclusion plan there. How, cool. So how did that come about within the organisation? So when I first started, I was working on specific projects. So it was Asian inclusion, faith and faith and football. Um, and actually on that, if, I, if you're May, you are, your name is Kevin, or I know you as Kevin Yusuf Coleman. Um, right. So do you want to tell us about that? Explain your name. Yeah. So I'm Muslim. Um, I converted or reverted 15 to 20 years ago now. So a long time ago. Um, and for those, you know, listeners that don't know, in, in Islam, there's no compulsion for people if you have an English name to, to, to change it to a Muslim name. It's a tradition. Um, and I think it's one of those, you know, I, I like to, like a lot of people, I, I have my interpretation. Everyone should interpret, interpret their faith the way they want. Um, and I didn't feel like I had to change my name. You know, I'm, I've always been known as Kevin or Kev, annoyingly. Um, and so I didn't see any reason to change that. I'm the same person with the same beliefs. So, but in a way I wanted to, to buy in cause, cause I live probably a, a largely Muslim or Pakistani cultural life at home. You know, the vast majority of my family are, are Pakistani. So I guess it was a way of trying to embrace both sides of my life. So taking on that name as a middle name. So it's, I haven't changed it by deed poll. It's just something I, I use. So that's why I'm Kevin Yusuf Khan. Okay. So, sorry, you said your family's Pakistani. Have you married a Pakistani girl? Yes. Uh, my wife's Pakistani. Uh, my children, uh, Zayan and Zakaria, are a dual heritage, you know, and, and at home, I would say, are, are, I guess you'd call it British Muslim or British Pakistani cultural household. And, and you know, our family... Typically, my, the Pakistani side is about 300 people and the English side is about 10. Um, you can imagine what the, my wedding was like. It's great, you know. I think um, they're two wonderful cultures and countries. And I feel quite privileged that you can almost sit on the fence and look on both sides and pick the bits you like and pick the silly bits and decide what you want to do. And, um, and funnily enough, this is something that's really interesting, I find. I think the generation, I think you, your generation and Zoeb, you're in sort of the golden generation, the, the, the second generation of Asian um, communities in that the first generation who came over um, had it a bit tougher. You know, they were living largely in Asian cultural life here. And then you've got the second generation who are born and brought up here like you guys, but living usually culturally at home in a very Asian, Indian, Pakistani household. And I guess you are living both sides of those, both cultures at once. And I think you're the only generation that will actually have that opportunity. You know, you'll be able to see out on the street British culture, but at home Asian culture. And, you know, sometimes I think it, it's been difficult for people identity wise. But actually looking back, it's, you've got that rich knowledge of both cultures. And I think it's almost I would call it a golden generation because you've you sort of understand both really intrinsically. 
each next generation down will be more and more English, as it were. Yeah, it's a conversation I've had about my kids, definitely. Um, but there you go. Okay, so so I so is that well? I guess that's going to obviously impact to a degree because then you you I guess dual um, culture, so you can see both sides of it, etc. Mm. So um, okay, so with the FA, so yeah, you. You you said you were, the projects was the Asian inclusion one faith, and faith and football faith and football is fantastic. I mean that's one I think all sports. I'm missing a real trick there. Um, you've got big faith communities, um, numbers wise anyway. You know not they're only you know biggest population in Muslim communities five percent, but all the other Hindu, Sikh, um, Buddhist community they're all a million people or half a million to a million people, and those communities love sport. Um, they can live in slightly disconnected to organized sport you know they'll play sport their own way and actually they're most of the communities i've ever come in contact with are really appreciative of any support from any governing body um and there's a really easy win there you know people say hard to reach communities but they're only hard to reach if you can't be bothered to reach them you know they're there they're living in certain areas you can reach them by picking up the phone or, or getting a bus and going to meet someone they're not really hard to reach at all. <clears throat> everyone has telephones. Everyone has email. It's not really that difficult. And I think it's really a lack of effort on the authorities' um, side because I think it's a really easy win for them. You know, they're, they're charged with trying to grow and develop the sport. You've got populations there that are, are, will be eager for any support you want to give them. Um, if you look at, as a good example, LTA, they've got this serves program. You've seen it. So what they've done is create a mini tennis court that you take into a place of worship. So you almost roll out a mat, which is a, a tennis court with a little net. And they put a coach in who delivers coaching sessions for about eight weeks. Brilliant idea. Worked really, really well. And they've engaged with specific, directly with communities and they've done it successfully. So Bangla Bantams, you know, the, the Bangladeshi community up in Bradford, they've taken that project on as well as working with, say, the FSA around the fans group. So really good example where with a little bit of investment and a little bit of effort, you can you can do well. And I think with faith communities, the 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 authorities haven't really made the efforts they could. Could have been a, a good, you know, in, even in terms of investment, really good return on investment from. I guess they're intrinsically linked those two, <clears throat> and there's a lot of crossover. Yeah, massive. You know, working on Asian inclusion, uh, the majority of Asian communities will be of faith. Again, that's something you can't always assume. And, and I think as you get down generations, people, some people will be less observant of faith. Um, and, it, and I think people think faith's often a barrier. Um, actually, it can be, it can help you because a lot of faith, you know, encourage physical activity and, and the positive side of sport. But actually, a lot of the time, it's not a barrier at all. If someone's Muslim, if someone's Sikh, they're the same person. Um, they, they're, and they usually just football crazy like everyone else. Uh, but yeah, you're right. There was a massive crossover. And I think going back to being Muslim, I, I always needed to be quite conscious that I wasn't working too closely just with Muslim communities. Because if you look at the history of Sikh communities, for example, in football, considering how much smaller they are than, say, Muslim communities, they've had a lot more professional players. So they've had real success. There are a load of clubs like GNG clubs, like GNG um, over in Gravesend, who have been around as affiliated clubs 50 or 60 years I've had pro players and coaches who've done really, really well. So there's a load of learning we could we could take from a lot of those clubs. 
Okay. So, right, the Asian inclusion plan, there was, there's been two, what, in your tent, during your time there, there was, there was oh. two aspects or two versions of it. Yeah. How did that, how did that go? I mean, was it successful? What kind of obstacles did you have with the first one? And what kind of changes did you put in for the second? I think the first one, I guess, how would you describe it now looking back? I guess it's dipping the toe in the ocean for the FA. So they've never done anything before or they've done bits and bobs, but nothing strategically. And I would say what we set out to do, we did, but it was a very small plan with small impact. You know, it was it was effectively me on my own. When did it um, start? The first 2013. one? 2013. Well, sorry, I started 2013. It was 2015 to 18. That came out at the beginning of 2015. It took a year or so. You know, I wanted to do it properly. We consulted really widely. We put, we got everyone on board, which is why when it was released, um, we, it had quite a good reception. And I think it was probably more symbolic than having an impact. As I say, you know, football's so big, and a plan run by one person can only have so much impact. But I think the people we did work with, like the community development centres, you know, they they had a positive experience. What were the main aims of that first program? So the top line objective was to get more Asian boys and girls playing football. Simple as that. So we we fashioned some KPIs, which were, you know, numbers of Asian boys and girls playing and the amount of times that they played um, and also uh, profiling role models. So going back to Amir Khan, you know, that's a really good example. That wasn't the, the result of anything governing bodies did, but him on his own, because he was such a high profile person, had that huge impact. So we we realised we needed to profile some of the Asian people who were in football more to change the perception, you know, around inclusion, especially perception is reality. If people perceive a sport is inclusive of them, they'll they'll get involved. Most people don't look at the evidence, they look at who they can see. You know, if you can see it, you can be it. Right. I think that was that Raheem Sterling that, that quoted that one. So I was led to believe, I think this was through our interview, or actually reading Dan Kilvington's book, because he mentions Mm. a study in there that Asians, especially those of Bangladeshi and Pakistani origin, play as a percentage, play more so. So when you say one of the the goals was to increase participation, um, I'm not saying that, are you suggesting that it was participation wasn't there before? No, I think that's something we've probably learned since. so the study you're talking about is quite an old one. It's a Sport England study um, that looked at people most likely to play mm-hmm. at, at any level. And that was Bangladeshi boys were first. Um, then I think black boys, um, Chinese boys, and I think English boys were one of the least likely or not as likely as Bangladeshi boys. But that was back in maybe 2005 or 2009. Um, but funnily enough, the FA have a tracker now are doing a lot of, so they have an re- insight department, which is a really positive thing. So they've got a department that just looks at research. And actually some of the indications are that um, Asian males and females are more likely to play football than white um, males and females, you know, at, at any level. So we're talking about kicking around in the park, going to goals, you know, small-sided centres at schools. And what the FA runs is affiliated football. So the FA runs 11-a-side leagues, anything that then goes up the pyramid towards the England team. That's their domain. I think there's around two or three million people in that pyramid. And if you look at wider football, the football universe, that's 10 to 12 million. 
So it shows the big difference. And I think, you know, you've got the answer there around Asian inclusion. The big issue is that it is Asian communities are playing football, but they're not playing affiliated football. They're not playing 11 aside structured leagues or they're not transferring from one to the other. That's where the big the big gap is. So did you discover that during that first program or in a second or at what point? And has that I think it was, particular thing been tackled? Mm, I think over time, I don't think there's any point. I think, and I'm not sure now you could, you could put your finger on one. Um, I don't think there's enough research, you know, which is another issue. I don't think there's enough research to put your finger on it. It just feels like the more people you speak to, uh, the more clubs you see, the more bits of research you see, it all points towards that. Um, and I think that now, I mean, I, I think the latest plan is a really good one. So Dal Daruch is now the head of EDI and he's taking over this work. Um, and because he's a head of EDI, he's been able to put a bit more weight behind it. So this second plan has a lot of the same principles of the first. Um, there's a bit more around profiling role models. You know, there's a bit more of the FA's media attention going on. So I don't know if you saw the video for the Asian Inclusion Plan, um, which had Yan Danda in it and Lisa Rashid, you know, the stuff like that gets more coverage. It built, we were at the BATV Music Awards talking about Asian Inclusion in football. And I think over time, you meet more and more people who have heard of your stuff. I think in inequality, there's a bit of um, a tendency to preach to the converted. You know, so I will say back in the day, there were about 40 or 50 people involved, really keen on Asian inclusion in football. And five or 10 years later, we were the same 10 people, 50 people in the room with grey hair, talking about the same things. And, and, and the outside world still not listening to us. And I think, you know, we, we need to get those messages. Those people have moved on a bit and moved up. And we need to permeate those messages into the general public. You know, you need someone picking up a copy of The Sun or the, or the Daily Mail, one of those sorts of papers and reading about Asian inclusion and seeing something positive. You know, not just people who are already on our mailing lists. And I think that's the next step. And that's what I think the new plan is trying to work towards. Do you, do you think, I mean, now that you've left the FA, I, perhaps you're a little bit freer, do you think the the plan I know it's still in its embryonic stages in the first year of it. Is it is it going far enough? And do you think, and if it isn't, is that just to do with the fact that momentum needs to build? Or do you think it's perhaps a, a little, it's not as bold as it could be? It's a good one. I guess that question, it depends who you ask. So for someone like myself or Zoe, who's really invested in this, we're never going to think it goes far enough. Um I guess the question is to ask that to someone like the chief executive of the FA who has an overview of everything, you know, because they'll, they'll be having requests from people who want to develop leagues, people who want to develop women's football, people who are looking at futsal, and they've got to make a call on what's a priority for them. Um, you know, the FA have an EDI strategy, equality or plan, which encapsulates all they do. And, yeah, I definitely think strategically, logically, it needs to have a, a bigger place at the table. You know, if you look at the, the population that is being excluded from affiliated football, um, the numbers of people that have been excluded from every area of football for a long time, it needs to have a higher profile, um, a bit more money behind it, you know, a bit more from the FA. I think definitely I mean, that's sort of indisputable. How big it needs to be, I guess, 
it depends on and I think as well remember the FA don't run everything in football I think the Premier League are obviously the richest organisation in football you've got the EFL the PFA the LMA PGMOL Football Foundation uh, really you should be and Sport England you know I think probably Sport England ideally should be bringing all of those stakeholders together and having them all around the table table asking them what they're all doing around Asian inclusion because outside of cricket participation in all of them is lower than it should be okay you mentioned the FA's chief executive there so I might as well ask this question what were your thoughts on Greg Clark's comments I think well I mean, I guess that's a relatively easy question to ask. I mean, you, know, you look at the statements that came out of the FA. Um, it, it, I think they were endemic of someone who's probably lived in a different generation, um, mixed with people for a long time from that same generation. Uh, I think the, the most shocking bit was the fact that after he said them, he didn't realise straight away what he'd said. You know, he said them quite casually. Um, I don't think there was any malice in them, you know. Um, but it, it just shows someone who is a bit out of touch with what the, you know, the average age of staff at the FA is about 36 years old. And those were the comments of someone in their 60s or 70s from a, from a different era. Um, and really, you know, yeah, I guess it, 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 in that role, you need to make sure that you're in touch with what the organisation is doing and saying, the way it behaves. So he probably did the right thing in stepping down. Um, now, my experiences of him were relatively positive. You know, I think whenever I'd been in a meeting on a few occasions, when in, only obviously as inclusion manager, I was only there when equality was talked about. But he pushed it and he put resources behind it. Um, he said it was a priority. So, uh, so he, he, within his role, he did all the right things. Um, um, I couldn't criticise him, but you know, it, that role has, is all encompassing, and you have to. You have to live it and you have to speak it as well as delivering it. And, and you know, you do things like that. Yeah, that's a, a pitfall of the job. You mentioned the fact that something that we've mentioned before on the show as well is the fact that the FA is one organisation which has its own remit. And people sometimes think it's the overarching organisation for football Ooh. in this country when it's not really when you've got the Premier League as itself, and then you've got the 92 clubs, 91, and you mentioned the PFA, the EFL, the LMA, the PGMOL. One thing you, I think the FA does deserve credit for is that they do have an Asian inclusion plan. Was there a frustration from you at the time or in terms of interacting with those other organisations? Do you think they had... A sim- do you think they recognise the issue around Asians in football or lack of? And do you th- I don't want to ask you if you think they're doing enough because I think the answer to that is obvious. But do you think it could be quite easy for them to do more or do you think it's more complicated than that? It's interesting. I think, I think the issue you've got with, you know, I don't think we can blame any one group. I think the issue you've got with British- English football is that it's grown organically. So what you have is a load of groups, all who have their own vested interest. You know, PFA are a union for players. If they weren't gunning for players all the time, they wouldn't be doing their job. And, and I think um, the governing body and all, ideally the FA is probably in the prime position 
has to work around that and has to deliver solutions that work for all of them. Um, I, I think all of them could be doing a bit more in their area. You know, how many, I don't think we've ever had an Asian referee in the Premier League in 30 years. Uh, we've only had one or two in, in the EFL. Um, there are very few Asian pros. Uh, but if you look at each organisation, you know, is it the PFA's fault that there aren't any Asian pros? Not really, because you only become a member of the PFA after you become a pro, you get a pro contract. Um, so every single issue, I think it's, it's a culmination of lots and lots of issues and you need quite a complex um, plan with loads and loads of levels to, to address it. Uh, and there's no one with that sort of remit. So I think everyone's looking around the room for someone else to take charge. And that's where I think somewhere like Sport England or the government probably need to step in um and use their power and their weight uh to get everyone around the table and almost force things to happen you know sometimes you need that bit of uh oomph or you need some sort of crisis to kickstart something into into motion and then it goes from there okay i mean it's interesting we've we've already identified there is no silver bullet there's no short-term mm-hmm. solution at all something i guess which i don't think we have discussed on the show is Perhaps, as you've just mentioned, a body to take charge of this and set out a plan and bring everyone to the table and try and get them to do the most that they can. So you think that should be Sport England? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, in cricket, you've got the Asian Cricket Council, which is a sort of collection of grassroots people and clubs in Asian cricket who feed into the ECB. I think that's quite a good model. I think it, I'm not quite sure it quite works. I'm not quite sure if the ECB really give it the the, the level of importance. But, I mean, that is a decent model. Um, but, yeah, I think Sport England, because if you look at all sports, Sport England oversee about 60 or 70 sports. Uh, and there are very few that have the, uh, the level of age inclusion that you should have. Cricket is, is actually overrepresentative. I think around 40% of people who play cricket are from an Asian background compared to 8% of the population. But that's um, not professionally, would, no? No, that's at grassroots level. Yeah. Um, that, the entire sport. Um, and I think that's probably despite the ECB. You know, that's just happened because those communities like cricket. I don't think it's because the ECB have encouraged them. Um, I think the ECB have done quite well in trying to cherry pick the talent from those, those clubs and leagues. You know, and you see the England teams, you've got a good level of representation. Uh, and those people will be role models. Um, but I think in all the other sports... It's a tough one. Um, you know, governing bodies are typically underfunded, um, don't have as much power and reach as we think they do. So solutions are actually quite difficult and, and it's hard to put your finger on one thing or one group that could do more. OK, so moving on to Brentford, we just talked about all the different stakeholders and what they are doing or not doing. And then you've got Brentford, who... You've said they want they've got a target to be the most inclusive club in the country. Sounds exciting. Um, yeah. So, is okay. So yeah, tell us tell us about that. Tell us what you're doing with them, and what your I guess short and medium term targets are. So yeah, that was you know as I say, I've been at the, the the FA a long time. It was a brilliant experience. I learned a lot, and I guess I wanted to to go somewhere where you know as I say, the, the governing body is restricted in some ways in what it can do. It's a neutral, non-political organisation, but a professional football club can set its own ambitions. And they were looking for a head of EDI 
that would lead this this objective of being the most inclusive club. And I think once the club has said that publicly, um, it has to live by it. And it's set the objective in. Is that is that from? It came from from the top, so from the owner and the the chief exec and the board, uh, which is really positive. And, and actually, because Brentford has in, a an Indian hmm. director. Is he a director? or Is he the actual owner, Nitty Raj? No, the owner is Matt Benham. Right. So he's an independent person from the area who's obviously wealthy, you know, he's done well for himself uh, and he's bought the club when it was in, in financial trouble. So he's a fan, a supporter, um, doesn't have any other, you know, uh, hidden agenda. Um, and yes, we have Nitty, Nitty Raj is on the board. Um, so we've got quite a, a diverse board in terms of roles. Um, and John Varney is the chief exec who, are, who I report into. Uh, and it's been really, really a good experience so far. I think weirdly, one of the really positive things about it is the club is a bit smaller. So, um, and why that is good is because it's easier to change. You know, we only have 200 staff in total. Um, and when you're dealing with, I guess, would that be a small, medium business, you know, uh, under 250 staff, it's easier to, to bring changes in, whether it be the way you recruit, the way you deliver things, uh, the on-field side. Uh, and actually, nothing has been off limits. I think we're trying to embed inclusion into everything. So if you look at the way we recruit people now, we're, we're asking for data of applicants as well as uh, employees to check that we, you know, the club, if you don't know, sits on the border of Ely and Helmslow. Um, and as such, though, both of those boroughs have around 50% um, Black and Asian minority ethnic communities, 30% Asian, both of them. So two of the most diverse boroughs, I think actually over 50% now in the country. And we need, ideally, you would want the fans and the staff to replicate that. Obviously, on the pitch, it's slightly different because you're the EFL, possibly Premier League in future, your your market for players is the world. Um, so I don't think you wouldn't just be looking at Ealing Hounslow for players. So I think it's uh, you can't expect the playing population to look like your local surroundings. I know, obviously, COVID has had huge impact, but what sort of things are Brentford doing to try and attract more of the local communities to the club? Because I'm assuming it's very much like I see around my way, etc., where there's a sizable number of Liverpool and Manchester United fans, etc., plus some of the other top six. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right, and... Well, interestingly, I don't know if you know, we've moved into a new stadium. So the Brentford Community Stadium, which is um, by Q Bridge around there, not, not far from Chiswick Roundabout, um, is a couple of miles from Griffin Park um, and a slightly different demographic locally. Uh, it's a 17,000-seater, uh, you know, very modern stadium. But because of the pandemic, we've never had an actual match inside. So it opened last March. Yeah, it was a massive shame that you that you yeah. got to the playoffs and there was no fans to see Griffin Park's no. last game. That's right. And we've only ever had since 2,000 people is the maximum. Um, actually, the ground is shared with London Irish Rugby Club as well. Um, but I think once we get out of COVID, yeah, that is one of our targets to look at the demographics of the, those two boroughs especially. But also, if you go out west towards Slough, Ivor, you have a big... Asian, uh, big Punjabi community out there. And I think there's probably quite a lot of demand. Um, obviously, you've got to look at the context where we are. We're very close to QPR, Fulham and Chelsea. 
know, three significant clubs. Uh, and you have to give people a reason. You know, I think nowadays it's not just asking people to come to, say, Brentford or whatever your club is. People have busier lives. You know, people are doing more. Kids are studying more. And, and to expect people to take a whole, pretty much a whole day out on a Saturday or a Sunday to come to a football match, maybe with her family, is quite a big commitment. So it, it's not just asking people to come to a club if they're worried about the behaviour of people or if they're not, they don't think it might be for them. It's whether people have the time and the money and the commitment to go to football matches. There are lots of different, I think, in modern day society, there are quite loads of different challenges. And I think you only find that out by speaking to communities directly. So that's one of the things I'll be doing is going to communities directly and to people and say, you know, what do you think of Brentford? What's your opinion? Um, anecdotally, uh, it feels like the, the club have a good reputation. You know, we've been well known for a while as being everyone's favourite second club. For example, in London, people say, oh, I'm a West Ham sport, I'm a Spurs sport. But I like Brentford. You know, they've got a reputation for good football, for being a good community family club. Um, and now, I guess, partly because they haven't had the success on the pitch in the past. They've never really been regarded as the people's favourite. But, you know, we're, we're going in the right direction and, and that might change if we get promotion. OK, so, Kevin, you Brentford wants to be the most inclusive club in the country, which is a fantastic aim. How are they going to do that? That's a really good question. I think most people would expect or, or think of just the players on the pitch because that's what most people see. But actually, you know, that's the, the, the side that's least likely to be influenced. And actually, you know, players get picked on merit and form. Um, and often at the pro level, you know, there's, there's not much around inclusion. You know, once you've, once you've picked a player and put them in your squad, you want to make sure they are included and you want to treat them equally. So, for example, at the training ground, I'm looking at having a, a multi-faith prayer space. Um, the food there is already veggie, halal, um, appropriate for different faiths. They have their own personal chefs. Um, but I think across the whole club, we need to make sure there is inclusion. So whether it be in our policies, whether it be our media, you know, the way we market the club. When you go to any club shop, you look at the people wearing the T-shirts. Are there black white Asian people wearing t-shirts are there male female children people with disabilities is that reflected in the website you know when you see Brentford or you you go to the stadium is it an inclusive experience if you're a wheelchair user can you easily buy a ticket um if you're blind can you listen to the match on a on a commentary you know I think you need to think of every aspect of the club whether it's for fans or staff or players and make sure that there's no area you've missed around inclusion and I think when you've done everything and, and, and almost you need to do a 360 feedback, you know, you need someone to come in and try and find fault in what you do. When they can't, then you can say you're the most inclusive club. OK, so Brentford are pretty unique in terms of not having a youth system, etc. Do you think do you think that hampers your ability to engage with the community and... I guess I'll just ask the question. I mean, given where you are located, it, mm. it could possibly be an avenue for young Asian players locally to try and get into a professional club. And therefore, as far as I know, that's a door that's closed. I don't know if you do have certain... <laughs> that's interesting. Clubs. Yeah, I, I, I think I think at that level, the Premier League Championships, I think not having an academy actually isn't necessarily... An, I mean, I think, you know... The, People who know a lot more about football on the technical side made that decision. Um, 
uh, but I think at that level, you're very unlikely to pick up people who are on your doorstep. Um, but I think what you do have, if you have a really good community trust, so our community trust um, has a, you know, has 30 or 40 staff delivering football locally across all of Ealing and Hounslow. Um, and I think what you need to make sure is that the community trust has a really close links with the club. So if you have any players or coaches or staff who have real talent, they're able to, to you're able to signpost them to local clubs, you know, so there'll be like Southall or yeah, Haraburras or, you know, local non-league teams and you have good links with them because we have a B team and the B team is often a feeder for the first team. So the B team could have really good links into those clubs as well. So I think that's the way you make sure you've got local talent, both players, staff, um, coaching staff, um, feeding through. But community trust is a key. What? So your target is to become the most inclusive club in the country. How will you know when you've achieved that? Really good point. So I think in my first two months, I've started to put together a strategy. Um, and in that strategy, we, I will build in targets, you know, short, medium, long term, and also KPIs. So the way we measure it, um, I think the trick, the difficulty is in the KPIs, because <clears throat> especially around inclusion. I don't know if you heard the phrase, um, some, some things that are important are hard to measure and some things that you can measure are not important, you know, and some of the really important things like the perception of the club is something that's difficult to measure. So I think the trick is how we measure those things. You know, you can measure people, how many people come in the stadium. You can measure how many clicks you get on the website, uh, how many views you get of your tweets. Uh, and I think you can try and measure the impact and the, the perception change you have like that. You can survey staff and fans and wider community. So I think we'll have some key, key KPIs and we'll have short, medium, long-term goals. And I think you get a feeling over time um as as to whether it's working or not what sort of feedback have you had from other clubs have they well do they admire what you're trying to do do they think it's well i don't know tell me anything uh it's probably i think it's probably too early for me to say but it seems really positive i guess only been in the role two months i've only uh engaged with teams we're playing against or some team you know there are a lot of groups so for example there's a a group of HR staff across different clubs who compare and support each other. And actually, I was pleasantly surprised about how supportive it is. You know, people are competitive on the pitch, but the staff are usually there for the longer term and they have really good relationships between clubs and they help each other out. You know, so for example, if it's the way that clubs deal with COVID, a lot of staff are talking to each other to share good practice. So they make sure uh, all of their workforces are catered for um so i think it's more a community feeling between the staff of clubs um and there isn't really the um i guess people aren't really competing with each other um i thought it might be more competitive but i guess that was a perception i have of looking at it on the pitch um behind the scenes there's more of a community feel and people doing their everyday jobs which is quite a nice uh, thing to see okay fantastic z any last questions before we wrap up not a question, but more of a a personal one, really, because we've known each other for a while, Kev, um, since kick out days. Yeah. Um, it's something that you mentioned at the start about how your journey has helped shape the next thing that you do. You've had the kind of grassroots element uh, embedded in you when you work at kick out, then seeing it from the kind of governance side, the uh, the the corporate side, shall we say, and now 
the, the the club side of things as well. And I think it's quite important that people realise that wherever you've been, it's quite it's always a, a stepping stone in a positive way that you take that knowledge up with you. But also important that we've got you on here to share that knowledge as well. Um, I think that's quite important to say that you can develop over time. You can be on the campaigning side of things. But ultimately, we want mobility in the game as well. People who've got the right intentions and who've been leading the fight to not forget that that's not all that we're capable of doing. We're not just capable of fighting from the outside. You can also be in the inside and implement change. And we've had Butch previously talking about how once you're on the inside, the ch- change does happen. You can still be uh, vocal as you were on the outside, but you have to understand there's certain mechanisms that are in place. Um, mm. But something did just come to mind, obviously, we kind of mentioned uh, George Floyd, um, uh, the incident happened last summer before I interjected earlier, but um, obviously Brentford now decided not to take the knee. Um, what what was the reason behind that? Um, and what, what are the club going to do in place of that to say, you know, we still want to take a stand and make a, make a, a point? Um, what's, what's, what's the steps that you're going to put in place? Yeah, that's an interesting one. So, yeah, you're right. So last year, as uh, partly as a reaction, you know, to, to George Floyd, a lot of players took the knee. Um, and I think that was a symbol of uh, against um, racism, specifically towards black communities and people, which is, you know, we know is a long term systemic thing across society, not just in football. Um, and I think it was a, a tactic then to raise awareness. And I think some players, you know, not just at Brentford, um, feel that it's become, you know, a, a routine part of matches and doesn't have the impact it did at the beginning. I think that's probably fair to say, you know, if, if it's been happening close to a year, players have been doing it. And and if you look at the structure and the processes of football, there hasn't been a material change. You can see why they might be frustrated in that. Um, and I think that was that was the sentiment behind it. They wanted to stop doing it and wanted to do something else in order to raise awareness, you know, to, re- to refresh, to freshen up a bit, to get people to look again and to prick up their ears again. Um, and I think that's where they're at. We've got, we've got a, a menu of activities we want to deliver. Um, and, that, and part of that is around the players. You know, I think players often across football have a lot to say, but sometimes we need to provide them with the vehicle to also deliver that. We've got a number of activities where we want the players to be involved, you know, and then players have got playing schedules. That's what they're paid to do. But it could be working with local schools, especially schools with more diverse kids. You know, those players are role models, whether they like it or not. Um, and they can and play a positive part in, in as being role models for young kids um, to succeed in the future. So we might use players for, to visit local schools, local communities. If we have programs like, for example, coach development programs or mentoring programs, they could be the mentors or the champions of that program. You know, because they're so high profile, using their channels and and their social media accounts, for example, or through the club, we can shine a light on a lot of the good practice that's out there, uh, sending positive messages to kids uh, and to encourage others to do some of the same things. So, you know, in, in short, yeah, they stop taking the knee because they want to do something different. They don't want the momentum to stop. They want to reinvigorate it and they want to do that through 
um, new activities and, um, and a new start. Fantastic. Sounds like Brentford is on its way to being a role model club. And Kevin, we wish you all the best of luck in making that happen. Thank you and great to talk to you today.